Every creator finds their own unique way to be creative. We're here to celebrate and learn from some of the very best. Welcome to Michael's Craftivity Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Michael's Craftivity Podcast. This is the place where we're celebrating and exploring the infinite ways creativity can be applied to life. I'm Anna White, your host. I'm the Vice President of Communications here at Michael's. And today we're going to talk about art curation with a curator who uses her creativity to shape how we experience art in the museum setting. Our guest today is Heidi Zuckerman. She's the director and CEO of the Orange County Museum of Art. Heidi's journey through the art world has been a fascinating one. She's held several leadership positions in museums around the U.S. She's the author of a number of books, including the series Conversations with Artists and a podcast that goes by the same name. Today, I'm so excited to talk to Heidi about the role of a curator, what her day-to-day job actually entails, and how she's working to make art more accessible for everyone. Please join me in welcoming Heidi to the podcast. Heidi, it's so nice to see you and meet you. Thanks so much for doing this today. My pleasure. Thanks for reaching out to me and inviting me. You're the first person that I don't actually have any kind of connection with, so this is pretty (laughs) exciting. I'm like a little nervous. I guess it kind of does show that sometimes if you find someone that you are interested in connecting with and you reach out, it it can all work out, which is really cool. Absolutely. I wanted to first have you just kind of say who you are, what you do, and what that role entails? Like for someone listening to this who may not really understand what a curator does or the director of a museum does, could you just explain that a bit? Sure. So I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I am the CEO and director of the Orange County Museum of Art. And in my role, I oversee the mission and the vision of the institution and also its execution. So I oversee everything from the curatorial schedule to staffing to the fundraising, to the oversight of the marketing, to the oversight of the construction of the new facility. So running a museum is really a series of verticals, including some of the traditional ones like exhibition making, but also some non-traditional ones, including food and beverage and retail. Right. I would think maybe if you were wanting to become a curator, you probably wouldn't think you'd be like planning the menu for the museum cafe, but it sounds like that's probably a piece of it now at your level. It is. And, you know, different people do this job in different ways, but my personal mission, which influences the tact that I've taken in my role as the CEO and director of this museum, is to connect people to art and artists to make their lives better. And so I'm interested in running an institution where everything comes from the program. So it's important to me that everything's in alignment. And I see the museum as an incredible platform to also put forth personal values and institutional values in the world. So one of the things that I have done at the Orange County Museum of Art is to come up with the name and the overall approach to the menu in our cafe. So it's called Verdant and it is plant forward. And so those are some of the things that I'm interested in and getting people to be exposed to things that they may not previously thought they were interested in, everything from contemporary art to a plant-based menu. 
Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's something I definitely want to talk around art and accessibility and like how do you draw people in who may just on the surface say, this is not for me. So I I do want to get there, but I would love to hear a little bit more about your childhood. So I was born in New York and then my parents moved us to Northern California and my father was an early Silicon Valley pioneer and I grew up going to public school in Palo Alto and I grew up in a house that was filled with art that my parents didn't understand or particularly like necessarily. It was things that my grandmother had accumulated and would send out to our house. So I talk a lot about the fact that I was kept company by these objects in my home and I could make up my own stories about what was happening in them and why they mattered to me. So I've always sort of thought about art as part of the popular culture and popular consciousness. And that's maybe different than how other people have thought about art. So for me, it was not ever something that was sort of exclusive or not available. And it was always something that was kind of personal and present for me. So that's kind of characterized my approach on how I talk about art to other people as well. And was your grandmother back on the East Coast? Was she in New York, like sending things to you all? She was in New York. Was your mother creative? Did or they they didn't really they weren't that into it? It sounds like <laughs> no, <laughs> neither of my parents. Yeah, so I I went to Palo Alto High School, and my dad wanted me to go to Stanford and study math or engineering. Mm-hmm. So I went to Penn and studied art history and English. <laughs> like. The exact opposite, basically. Yeah. Except both good schools. (laughs) Yeah. So I was planning to be a judge. I thought I would go to law school. And I think it was my senior year in high school, I walked by an open door classroom and I saw some slides on the screen. And I was attracted to them. And I realized that I knew a lot of what was being shown. And so I realized I had all this kind of latent art knowledge from growing up with my grandmother, from, you know, the incredible privilege to travel with her. I was the oldest grandchild and my grandfather didn't like to travel. So from the time that I was about eight, I was kind of the chosen companion. And I had a very formative experience at the age of eight where I was taken out of school for about three weeks and we went to London. We went to all the museums and I collected these picture postcards. My assignment was to create a journal to bring back to school. And I basically started doing then what I still do now, which is cataloging the objects. So artist title, date, dimension. And I found it maybe five years ago and and had this kind of aha moment that very much of my life had come from that super formative trip. And I've talked to a lot of people on my own podcast and some of my friends in YPO and, and that age, that eight years old, third grade seems to be kind of a, like a, a very, very important touchstone in people's lives and their careers. And and I talk about it for my grandmother, too, because that was the end of her formal education. So she was taken out of school after third grade, so totally self-educated after that. Oh, wow, that's amazing. So I have an eight-year-old son who loves art. And it's, it's really interesting because he loves to draw and he, he's trying to sketch but I think it's hard even in elementary school here in, in the Park Palo Alto area, you know, that he has art one hour a week. And he would just love to do art all the time. And I could see how people would think eight, or I might even think eight is a bit young to take on like an 
art tour of, <laughs> of Europe. But I actually, there probably is so much curiosity then and your brain's still in the midst of absorbing so much. You don't, you don't really have a fixed mindset. Yeah, I don't think you do. And I think that there's a point at which we become self-critical, which comes with self-awareness. And I think the point before that is so important to, to capture and inspire. And I am not educated about, um, classical education or elementary education or anything like that. And I have raised my own kids and I have all sorts of my own self-tested opinions, um, including this idea that there's a limited space in our brains for creativity and for storytelling. And so we made the decision to not have our kids have access to TV or movies uh, until they were originally eight years old. Oh, that's interesting. Did you do anything pivotal with them at around the age of eight besides the no TV? Did you take them on a trip or did you replicate what your grandmother had done for you? You know, I don't know if I had the level of self-awareness around that age until kind of recently when I started to tell my story more. For a long time, I was really very private and didn't tell my own story. And, and that's evolved for me over the last, I'd say, five years when I started to get feedback from largely women in the field and and sometimes young women and sometimes young women who wanted to have a family as well as a career. And, and I was told how impactful the decisions that I made in my career were and making my family very, very visible in the museum. And then I, I started to have some awareness around the responsibility um, unintentional responsibility that I was now having on the next generation of curators and women in the art world. So I definitely did not intentionally do anything with my kids at that age. And I've just recently started to think backwards about, you know, what they were doing and, and maybe where some of that impact might be for them. Thank you for telling your story. I totally agree with the other women who gave you the same feedback. I think it's so important to hear from women who have really impressive careers and have been able to raise any number of kids <laughs> at the same time. It's it's kind of a daily challenge. So you're finishing school at Penn with your English and art history degrees. And at some point then, did you say, I want to be a curator? I also went to Penn. Um, but it's, it's very pre-professional. And so I think everyone was doing like banking or law was kind of the obvious thing. But um, I, I, how did you move from potentially being a judge to curation? Yeah. So the story that I like to tell is I came home for the summer after my freshman year and had four months off and thought that I should get a job. And I started looking through the phone book and I saw art galleries. And I thought, well, that would be interesting. So I started calling. So you're at letter A, you just started. <laughs> exactly. Yep. I started at A, called everyone. Everyone said, you know, they weren't looking for anyone. And then I got a woman by the name of Paula Kirkaby on the phone. And I said I was studying art history, uh, which I wasn't yet. And then I was looking for a summer job. And did she need anyone? And she said, it depends. And I said, on what? And she said, where do you go to school? And I said, I go to Penn. And she said, come in and talk to me. So I went in and talked to her. And about three weeks after I started, and, and I was paid. So I wasn't an intern. I've always been paid to work in the art world. And that's one of the pieces of advice that I give is that I really think it's important that people be paid for their work. And so even if the institution can only compensate you for a travel stipend or whatever it is, 
it's really important to me that that equity piece, you know, long before people started talking about equity in a broad way, um, that's always been something that I've advocated for. So paid as a 17-year-old to work for Paula Kirkaby at Smith Anderson Gallery, and she fired her director and didn't hire anyone else for the rest of the summer. And, you know, I knew a lot about computers. And so I ended up computerizing the entire gallery inventory and doing my first studio visit with an artist. And that was Sam Francis, because he had a space um, in a studio in Palo Alto at the time. And um, I sold a work of art. And I, I went back to Penn um, as a sophomore, kind of curious about the art world. So I decided to get a, a work-study job that year. And I got a work-study job at the Institute of Contemporary Art, which was and still is part of the Penn campus. And I, you know, started to spend a little more time with contemporary art and contemporary artists. And I still didn't think about it as a profession, but I would spend some time in downtown Philadelphia and again, studying, you know, a little bit of art history, a little bit of English, a lot of history and not thinking it would be a, a career. And then a friend of mine, my junior year said, Hey, it seems like you really like this art thing. There's a program at Christie's Auction House that maybe you could look into. And so sure enough, I told my parents, you know, I was thinking that I didn't want to apply to law school, that I, I wanted to try and see if I could make a go of it in the art world. And and they told me that was a terrible idea. They sent me to Europe for the summer to kind of, you know, get my head right and told me that I would apply to law school when I came home. But of course, that summer, I spent the summer going to museums, you know, with a friend and a URL pass and, you know, all over the place and just was transported. And so I, I did. I applied to this Christie's program. I took the train to New York. I was interviewed by three, you know, very not smiling British people. And, um, I was handed a stack of picture postcards, fine and decorative arts and, and instructed to put them in chronological order. And I laughed. I thought they were kidding and they were not kidding. And, um, I had never really done visual analysis before, and so I didn't really know how to do it um, academically, but I guess intuitively I had a sense of how to do it, and so I put the cards out, and then they asked me to talk about why, why I had put them in a certain order, and so I was connecting them time-wise to what I knew about Art Nouveau or Romanesque architecture or um, surrealism and by the end, I guess I got them in order and I got into the program and my grandmother said she would fund me for a year. Um, so I went off to London for the year to do this training program at Christie's Auction House and it just, it kind of went from there. I actually also went to London after Penn to LSE, but a bunch of my friends were doing either the Christie's or Sotheby's program. That's so cool. So then you came back to New York and is that when you kind of got your first job as a curator? No, not yet. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> so I came to New York and I got a job in an art gallery. So I worked at a Stocks Gallery and I was fortunate to get interviews because I had gone to Penn and then I'd spent a year in London. And so I, and I had already worked at Smith Anderson for the summer and I had a year at the ICA in Philadelphia. So, I mean, by that point, I'm 20 years old, um, I think 2021. I think, yeah, 21. And I already had all this experience. And is this all contemporary? Are, we, are you looking at galleries of all kinds or really just contemporary art at that point? 
mostly contemporary art at that point. So at Christie's, I, I already had an idea that I wanted to work with contemporary art. So I didn't choose a contemporary art specialization there. I, I instead, I focused on 18th and 19th century French and English furniture because I thought, when else am I ever going to learn this? Because by that point, I did have an idea that I was going to try and pursue contemporary art. I was interested in Soho and applying to galleries in Soho, and I got a ton of interviews. And Stefan Stucks kind of preempted everyone else and made me a job offer. And I said I would think about it. And he said, well, why wouldn't you take the job? He kind of like pushed me into taking the job. <laughs> I mean, I was a young girl, and um, and I definitely learned you know, later on how to maybe find my voice a little bit more and, and be able to ask for what I wanted because I was paid $16,000 a year. That was my compensation, and, and I could work on Saturdays a sixth day for a little bit more money. So it was um, not... Uh, I'm sure it was the right decision. And as I tell my story now, there were a couple of different instances pretty early in my career where as a young woman, I definitely didn't have my voice when there were older men who were advocating for what worked best for them or their, their business or their firm or whatever it was. So I got this job. I worked at Stuck's Gallery. And the, the great thing about that was everyone at the gallery, all the artists and everyone who worked there other than Stefan was under 30. And, you know, I was quite young, 21. At that point, I had gone to school early and I, I made lifelong friends in the art world. And so, you know, a lot of people that I am still quite close to and have had these long time professional relationships and friendships I met at that time including a lot of artists such as Doug Aiken who you know has been a close friend of mine for almost 28 years. So tell me Heidi when we actually say contemporary art what does that mean? Is there a specific time stamp between this date and that date? Yes. Okay. So historically contemporary art is basically 1970 to the present yes. and more specifically it's the art of our time. And so probably now contemporary art would be, you know, 1989 to the present. So the date that defines contemporary art keeps getting moved up, you know, but when we were in college, it was 1970 to the present. Now it's like 1989 to the present, but it's really the artists who are for the most part living and working today. That must add a really interesting element to your job that you can, you get to go meet artists like you get to still you know you're you're not trading or dealing in art maybe you do in your current role maybe I know you're collecting several new pieces for the museum in Orange County but it it must feel fulfilling to be able to go meet the person and hear the stories and not have to rely on kind of history to tell you what the person was thinking when they painted that that is the best part of my job and that is exactly why I chose to focus on this era because it's a phenomenal privilege to be able to spend time with these artists and to spend time in their studios and to ask them questions. And the thing that ties together all of the artists that I've worked with over time, and it's an interest in the intent of the artist. You know, why did they do what they did? And a big part of my role as I see it is is to interpret the work that the artists have made to interpret what they're intending to communicate for hopefully a very broad audience. And the idea of being in conversation with artists, that's what I've done really since I first got to New York and continue to do with the podcast and with the book series. And it's to be able to, I think, make art feel more available to people by 
allowing the artist the opportunity to talk about the work in their own words. So is that what attracts you? Is it the artist that attracts you to pieces or is it the art? (laughs) Such a good question. You know, it's both. And you do have to be careful because ultimately the decision to show work or acquire work has to come from the object. It can't come from the artist. So some artists can be super seductive or intriguing or, you know, humorous or, or you might really like them as a person. And the art has to stand on its own. The art has to be able to tell its own story. The art needs to have its own energy. It needs to be compelling and alluring and confusing and um, productive and, and all of these things, you know, separate from the person who made it. So what kind of things do you look for? And also what, like, what is it like in your home? And then like, what do you look for for the museum? Yes. So the art that we live with is often by people that I know. It's often by artists that I am friends with or have shown over time. And there are some things that were gifts. And there are a few things that belong to my grandmother, you know, like a painting from like the mid 19th century of Hong Kong Harbor or early 1920s portraits of a writer from Massachusetts or some just kind of funny, strange things. And of course, decorative arts from my grandmother because she was a decorative art collector. So furniture, um, some silver, some ceramics, things like that. And then I've also, I have the collecting bug. So I buy art and it's kind of an addiction. I have to kind of rein myself in. I have to set a budget for the year and choose well. And a lot of the art that we live with has a sense of humor. I like art that's funny. I like people that are funny. <laughs> uh, and, and a lot of it is, is beautiful, you know, beautiful to me, right? We all have our own sense of what we think is beautiful. And our, our sense of what's beautiful may evolve over time as well. And I really enjoy looking at the things that we live with. At the museum, I'm trying to show things that I think will be important to the history of art. So it's not always necessarily things that I like and or things that I love. I only live with things that I love. That's important to me. But the museum isn't about my own personal taste. It shouldn't be, uh, and it's not. It's about understanding the continuum of the history of art and what matters. And it's also sensitive, not just to time, but also to place. So it's appropriate to show different work based on, you know, where the museum is located and what different communities would benefit from, from seeing. So let's go back. So you finish or you do your first job in New York, make all these wonderful connections, and then How long were you there before you went to the Jewish Museum? So I was there, I think, about 18 months. And then I went and did maybe a year. I can't really remember the exact timing of these things, but with uh, an arts management company. And it was great. It was super hard work. I was working, you know, 70 hours a week, maybe more. Um, it, but it was a crash course in, in administration. So I, I did that. That was probably maybe a year, maybe a little bit longer also. 
And then at that point, I decided that what I wanted to do was to go and work in a museum. So I took the train down to Philadelphia and I went to the career planning and placement office. And this is when there were binders. And um, as you sort of referenced, there was like a bookshelf, multiple bookshelves filled with binders for people in investment banking. And I mean, (laughs) tons. And then, you know, I looked for museums, um, or maybe even art, you know, so there was one binder on museums and I opened it up and there was one page and there were three names, like that was it. So I called each of the people and I think two of the people maybe didn't answer or whatever, but, but I got a, a woman named Diane on the phone and she was a curator at the Jewish Museum in New York. And she said, that she couldn't recommend me because, of course, she didn't know me, but that there was a position open in the contemporary department at the Jewish Museum, and I should call. So I called, and I spoke to Susan Goodman, who was the chief curator at the time, and she said, come in and talk to me. I also went to Penn. So that was the second time in my career that I got an interview because of where I had gone to school, and she hired me. So she hired me as her assistant, and then I was pretty quickly promoted to become a curatorial assistant and then an assistant curator. And so I spent um, hmm, five years, I think, working at the Jewish Museum. And the first show that I curated, I, I worked on a like as an assistant on a Russian Jewish artist show. And and I learned about couriers and um, served as a courier, went to Europe with a painting to protect. And then I, I did these kind of smaller, like one person artist projects. And then I, I did a great show with um, Louis Kahn on his architecture that was traveling from somewhere else, but I was able to make it mine. I, I did a great show with George Siegel towards the end of his life. And um had a really interesting conversation with him and realized that I was great at talking to artists, not just my friends, but that I could talk to people of a totally different generation and and have insight in, into their work. And then I did my first major exhibition there, which was a show that was called, um, well, I called it the Hanukkah Project, but the marketing department called it Light Times Eight. And it included Olafur Eliasson's first one person or first project in the United States. I had seen the work traveling abroad and commissioned him to do a major work on, on Fifth Avenue and 92nd Street. And, and so that was the first time that I really did something, um, that seemed impossible. You know, our, our install crew had never really done a project of that scale and everyone felt really, really proud of it. It was, um, 10 floodlights with yellow filters and two fog machines buried in the kind of moat around the Jewish Museum on, on Fifth Avenue. And, you know, first we installed it and all the fog just went away um, on 92nd Street. So then they had to build this wooden wall, you know, below ground, and then the fog would hit the wall and then come up on the building. And I encourage the listeners to um, Google this project because it was phenomenal. And I'll never forget, once we figured it out about two or three in the morning, like the day before the opening, we took this picture of everyone on the install crew and, and the artist and his team and our curatorial team. And it was like a band photo. You know, we were we were so proud of ourselves. It was a phenomenal show. And it was this kind of conceptual idea of what it would mean to celebrate the holiday. Oh, that is beautiful. Yeah, definitely. I will look that up and hopefully everyone listening will too. It was really cool. And that really, 
I think, set the tone for my career, which has been to do projects that other people think are impossible and to give artists opportunities to think really beyond the scope of of how they had maybe previously worked. Oh, that's amazing. So it sounds like during this period, you did start to find your voice and in ways ask for what you wanted and what you needed to get the things done that you had in your mind that you wanted to create. Yeah, I've always... um, I'm not really very good with no. I kind of see no as like not yet. When I'm presented with a with a barrier, I look for a way to go around it, you know, or over it or under it. Oh, that's great. So then you move back to home. You move back home to Berkeley. Yeah. So I'd been at the Jewish Museum, you know, as I said, almost five years. And a friend of mine had said, you know, it's time for you to to move on. You know, if you could have any job in the country, what would it be? And I said, well, I'd love to be the matrix curator at the Berkeley Art Museum, but I don't think Larry Rinder is, you know, going to leave anytime soon. And I mean, within, I don't know, maybe three, four weeks of saying that, I got an email from a friend of mine who was on the board of the Berkeley Art Museum. And he said, we had a board meeting today and Larry Rinder stepped down and I asked him if he would be a good candidate for the job. And he said, yes. So it took about seven months to get the job, but I knew I was going to get it. I felt like I had manifested it. And I had just recently gotten married and um, my first husband agreed to move with me across the country. So sure enough, we drove across the country and I, I started at the Berkeley Art Museum as a matrix curator. January 2nd. What does that mean exactly, Matrix Curator? So the Matrix program was created by a phenomenal American museum director named Jim Elliott, James Elliott. So he had been at the Wadsworth Anthenaeum in Hartford, Connecticut, and he had the idea that contemporary art should be shown in American museums. So around 1974, he started a program at the Wadsworth Anthenaeum to bring contemporary art into a traditional museum. And so the idea was to um, engage living artists um, to do exhibitions. And that was the first program of its kind. It predates MoMA's project series. And then he moved from Connecticut to Berkeley and he became the director of the Berkeley Art Museum. And I believe in 1978, he started the Matrix program at Berkeley. And so it was the longest running the Berkeley program because The Wadsworth kind of had fits and starts, but the Berkeley Art Museum was the longest consecutive running program of showing contemporary art in an ongoing basis in an American museum. So was uh, something that I was really excited about because I had made this commitment to contemporary artists and I had made this commitment to museums and, and having the broadest possible audience for contemporary art. So Jackie Boss was the director at the time and part of what I said in order to take the job was that I wanted to present my exhibitions for question and comment only, but not for approval. And she greenlit that. And that is like basically unprecedented uh, in a museum because museums have exhibition committees and everyone gets to vote on things. And I had come off my experience at the Jewish Museum where I, I couldn't get anything scheduled in a proper gallery space. And so I didn't want to move across the country and face the same thing. And so she, I mean, amazingly greenlit that for me. And I was able to do 40 one-person exhibitions in six and a half years. And really, that's where my career 
um, I think was made because I did the first one person museum exhibitions for a lot of artists who have come to define our time. And I was able to be nimble and to trust my intuition and to offer opportunities without having to wait for the approval of the director or the exhibition committee. And it was a profound gift you know, to me and and the artists who I was able to show. And would you say, like, if you think about those 40 exhibitions, is there a medium that you consistently kind of go back to? Like the majority of works that you've curated as part of an exhibition, are they canvas, painting on canvas? Is it like neon sculpture? You know, is there any medium that you kind of go back to consistently or is it really all over the place? Mm -mm. It's really about the artist and what it is they're trying to communicate. And, you know, for me, it's less about the form that the work takes and more about the why. And so there are artists that I have shown that, you know, only make paintings. There are artists I've shown that, you know, only make photographs or sculpture um, or drawings. And a lot of the artists that I have worked with just because of the time in which we're living, people kind of use whatever format communicates what they want to communicate. So, you know, video or film or installation or sound or smell. Um, it's, it's all kind of on the table for me. And, you know, you asked me earlier, like, what am I looking for? And, and I'm looking for something that I haven't really seen before, something that I can't quite get out of my head, um, something that I keep thinking about, you know, whether I like it or I don't like it, whether I'm, you know, excited about it or annoyed by it, but I just keep thinking about it. And I look at a lot of art and I, I have for a long time. And so, you know, when I am somewhere and I see kind of the same thing and I have the same reaction, like, um, there's an artist I'm interested in right now that I saw in London, maybe, a year ago and then just saw at the Venice Biennale. And, you know, it just sometimes it's kind of caught out of the corner of my eye. But I just, I'm, I'm curious about it. I'm interested in it. I'm intrigued by it. Uh, and it's, it's often because I don't quite understand it or there's something I haven't seen or that's, you know, confounding to me that, that makes me curious. So the authenticity piece, something new, ori- originality, authenticity. Yeah. And surprise, something that's surprising. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you know, one thing we're hoping to do with this podcast is um, you talked about your mission. And um, for Michael's, ours is, you know, we, we literally provide art supplies to artists and makers and creatives. And we, we do that. I mean, it's yes, it's our business, but it's also because we do believe that the world is better. The more people that create art, that share art, give art to people they love, just the better the world will be. <laughs> and so part of our goal with this podcast is to also really encourage and inspire people to not be afraid of trying some new thing that may seem, and what you're kind of saying, it's like, maybe the more out there, the better. Like, this may not be something you've seen before. And that's exactly the point. Like, you want stuff that is new and authentic. And I think one of the things that gets tough with social media, having worked at many of these places in my past, um, you do start to see so similar things over and over sort of break out and do something new and different. Sometimes it feels a little scary because you're kind of reminded like, oh, this is everyone's doing this because it works, but there's more to do. And it sounds like from your perspective. Yeah. You know, I, I can't underscore that enough. I think that curiosity is the barometer of society. And I think the more people are 
courageous in their curiosity, the better we'll be. And so, you know, we share this mission, you know, to encourage people to, yeah, be brave, you know, and, and to be creative and, and to do things that haven't been done before. And I think that there's a difference between, um, being alive and living. And I think to be living, it is about, you know, pushing boundaries of, you know, our own personal comfort levels and, and doing things that, that make us uncomfortable. And, you know, you, you said earlier, you heard, uh, the podcast I did with Rich Roll. And, you know, we talked about this run, hut, run thing with Ricky Gates. And, so you know, cool. he, kept emailing me like, Hey, can we set the date? Can we set the date? And I keep kind of, you know, ignoring the emails because I'm, I'm like terrified of this, you know, and, um, and I'm going to do it, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it because what's the worst thing that can happen, right? You can fail. And there are so many gifts within failure. And I love this Ram Dass quote, right? That like beginnings often hide themselves in endings. And, you know, if we don't push ourselves to understand what our limits are, like outside of our comfort zones, then, you know, we're really not living. We're alive, but we're not really living. And, and I do think that art is, um, is the best company that, that we can be in. Oh, I love that. So did you have your kids here in the, in Berkeley, in the Bay Area? I did. Okay. Mm-hmm. So a boy and a girl. Yes. Mm-hmm. And how was that difficult to manage or how did you manage that when they were little and you're trying to put on 41 artist shows over six years? How did that work? You know, um, there are a bunch of different stories that I could tell about it. So one is we had a rotating chairship at the Berkeley Art Museum. And so there were three senior curators and, you know, I was probably 20 years younger than the other two. And, and so I was the third one to, to take the chair. And, um, so that my colleagues could get used to, um, the idea of, you know, reporting to me, right? So, um, there was a time, uh, when our offices were moved out of the museum into a, another building. It, you know, the, the museum was seismically unsafe. And so, you know, they did the calculation and they moved us out. And, um, so there were a variety of offices and they weren't all equal. Okay. One of them was better. Uh, it had a balcony, it had its own shower, it was much bigger, and my colleagues really wanted that office. And I really didn't care because I, at the time, my kids were super little and I was like literally changing diapers before I went to work. So, you know, I had perspective on, you know, like what mattered most. And the director at the time interviewed each of us about the offices and why we thought we should get them. And and I said, literally, you know, I'll, I'll sit wherever you tell me to sit. Um, it's It doesn't define me. Uh, it doesn't really matter to me. So, I, of course, ended up getting the office, right? Because I didn't really care. And um, that idea of having more than just my job, um, having a balanced life, having other people who needed me, having, you know, like a diversity of responsibilities, I always felt like made me better at my job. Um, and I've, I've had kids basically my whole career. There was a, only a very short time, um, before I had kids. And so I had another experience a little bit after that where, I had been told by my male boss that I could have one kid, but I couldn't have a second kid. And, um, 
that, you know, I basically couldn't have a, my job with a, with a second kid. Wow. And so I waited a whole year. Um, I had originally wanted, you know, my kids to be two years apart. And, and then I just decided to, to go ahead and, and have uh, a second kid anyway. And it was that experience that, caused me to decide to become a museum director and treat people differently than I had been treated. And so the power of women to support other women and to ask real questions, you know, what's going on? Why are you not yourself? How can I help? That has helped me define how I interact with my team. And my team, regardless of their their gender, they know that they can prioritize their families. They can coach soccer teams. They can, you know, leave early. Um, and it makes people feel super loyal if they know they can get their work done in the evenings or in the mornings or whatnot. And so again, predating this idea of remote work or whatnot, really honoring people's whole selves and, and inviting them to bring their whole selves to work has been a touchstone of, of my professional practice. And I, I don't know, uh, this world is fascinating to me, but I don't know it. And I think many of our, some of our listeners will understand and know it, but some won't. I'll be more novice like myself. Um, are there a lot of women in positions like yours at the director CEO level? Um, are there roles in museums, kind of some of the bigger museums in the US that, you know, so you'll sometimes you'll see a, an area that's like mostly staffed by women and then an area that's mostly staffed by men. How do the gender dynamics play out in the museums, kind of broadly speaking? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely way more women in director roles than there have been in the past. I'm a member of an association called the Association of Art Museum Directors, and they had for a long time the women's committee or the women's group. And it was because there weren't that many women, and so they needed to be able to meet separately. And I think it still continues. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, the they just had the first in-person meeting post-COVID, and, and I didn't go, so I'm not sure if they still had the women's committee meeting. But there's certainly a lot more female museum directors than there have been over time. When you look at the museums that are headed by women, they are, for the most part, institutions with the smaller budget. So as you get higher and higher budget numbers, the gender balance still shifts. And um, only in the last two years has there been a woman appointed to run a museum with a budget over $50 million, annual budget over $50 million. Where, where was that? Um, so Kaywin Feldwin is the director of the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. Wow. And how about on the artist side? I mean, what, when you were, you know, first in New York and working at the first gallery and kind of connecting with contemporary artists, were they mostly men that you were finding just because those are the ones that people were talking about? And now are there more women that you identify? And, or, and have you made that part of your goal too? Yeah. So definitely when I was uh, a you know, a young person working in a gallery, the majority of the artists that were represented by the gallery were male. I personally, in my career, have shown a lot of female artists and artists of color my entire career. And not because I'm, you know, a flag waver or anything like that, but I am always interested in showing the best work and the most interesting work. And so my career has definitely been defined by um, showing a lot of female artists and, and a lot of artists of color. 
Yeah, I mean, I, we, we're particularly just interested in that too because Michael's has the vast majority of our staff are women. I mean, even at the leadership level, we have a very diverse executive team and our customers. You know, we have a lot of women shop grandmothers, moms, teens, like a lot. We, we also have other folks who come in, but definitely we, we're very interested in helping nurture like that next generation too of, of female artists. Yeah. I think it's super important. And, you know, I, I really understand the power of the platform that I have. Uh, and I always have, and I have always wanted to use it for good. And those are some of the choices that I've made. And so the Orange County Museum of Art, where I am now the CEO and director, this museum was founded by 13 women 60 years ago, which was so progressive and so audacious, you know, to, to be doing that. And I made a, a kind of goal to have a all female executive team, if possible. Of course, hiring the best and most qualified people for all of the roles. And we did a photo shoot right before we opened of 13 women. So being able to have women, empowering women and and being mentors and to just create a culture of openness and inclusivity. And I am really proud of that. That's definitely something to be proud of. That's great. I want to look for that photo too of the 13 of y'all. Okay. So you are, I think, I I believe I read this. Um, You are one of the only two people in the U.S. to have rebuilt museum institutions from the ground up in your tenure. Yes, um, I'm one of, yeah, I'm one of only two people to have ever, yeah, built two ground up museums in America. Yep. So uh, I was... And the only woman. The only woman, okay. (laughs) And I was thinking about you rebuilding these two museums, Aspen Art Museum and the Orange County Museum of Art, and thinking about that process, like working with architects, engineers, designers, as a curation, you know, it's curating a really massive, more expensive, very permanent Mm -hmm. exhibit in some way. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about it that way as, as kind of like another avenue for you to use your curatorial chops? You know, it's interesting, uh, not with that specific language around it and maybe intuitively and not intellectually. So thank you for that. That's great. That's great. And, you know, that is very accurate. And I did that both times, you know, both times I thought about the program and the, the architecture. I thought about what the guides are wearing. I thought about the language that we use to talk about the art. I thought about the cafe space and the shop. And I thought about the, the furniture and the fixtures, I thought about the placement of the outlets and the sensors. And it's interesting that you, that you use that framework because, for example, the first exhibition that I ever curated, it was, um, not very sophisticated, you know, uh, and it was really all about the aesthetics. It wasn't really about the concept. And then I went kind of the other direction and I curated a show that I say was like a bad show because it was all about the concept. And, you know, I just kind of found art to sort of, um, plug into the show. And so, you know, the Aspen Art Museum, I would say that a lot of my decisions were aesthetic and, and great, and I feel great about them. And I would say that the difference with the Orange County Museum of Art was that I had a high-level concept that then was also executed through aesthetics. And, you know, my overall philosophy here 
was to, you know, to look back, to look forward and to really build a museum of the 21st century. So every decision that I made around the institution was looking at that kind of North Star as a barometer, like, will this do that? You know, will this help with that? Okay, so you were at Berkeley for six years. Mm -hmm. And then how did the museum, how did the job in Aspen come about? So I was really happy at the Berkeley Art Museum. I was sitting in my nice office, you know, with the balcony and the, the door shower. open. <laughs> yeah, I never use a shower. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I was contacted by a search firm and I wasn't looking for a job. And um, I was contacted about jobs, honestly, all the time, but something about it kind of caught my eye. And, um, and I didn't delete it. And we went on a family trip. By this point, my kids are born. Um, we went on a family trip to New Zealand and Australia and had all this time in nature. And, um, our life was pretty full in the Bay Area. It was very social. And, you know, our kids were very little, but already they were like hyper scheduled. And the idea of raising them in Aspen was super appealing. Um, with, you know, kind of a, a more seasonal approach to life and, you know, a, a little bit slower. And certainly in the high seasons in Aspen, it was, you know, as busy or more than being in San Francisco or New York. And in the off seasons, you know, it was a little easier to, um, I was the the great ambassador, which is, you know, what they now call class mom, right? Um, I was the great ambassador like for eight years, you know, for my kids. And I was on the Aspen Junior Hockey Board. I was the chair of that board. And, and you know, I was able to play like a lot of these roles because it was, you know, during the off season, a little, a little slower than it was to be in a, a major metropolitan area. So invited to Aspen to, to interview and arrived. I had already had three or four interviews in a couple different states. So this was the final one. And we arrived for winter school and it was, you know, blue skies, like sparkling white snow, fire engine running through town with all the local kids sitting on it. And, you know, my former husband and I looked at each other and said, how can we not do this for our kids? So yeah, picked up and moved to Aspen. And I had been hired, but I hadn't quite started. And they said, you know, we want a new museum, right? And I mean, I, I literally had six interviews in like four states and no one mentioned that they wanted a new museum. And so I said, well, you know, we're not going to build a museum just because museums are being built all over the country. We'll only build one if we deserve one. And people were like, deserve? What's that? Like, that's not an Aspen word. You know, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, donors tripping over school kids, nowhere to park your car, nowhere to hang your coat, like literally bursting from the seams. And I said, if we can rebuild the institution, uh, rewrite our mission, rewrite our, our vision, um, build the institution from the ground up, and then we need a new museum and we deserve one, then we'll go ahead and, and do that. And so it took a little while and eventually uh, did do that. Hired Shkira Bon, I raised over $130 million eventually and created this, this new museum in Aspen. And I'm super proud of it. Um, it wasn't easy. It was really, really, really hard. A lot of people didn't want it. A lot of people saw me as a representative of a kind of town and gowned community in a, in a diversely changing place. And a lot of people didn't want that. You know, there was a lot of nimbyism and they didn't care if it was free. They didn't care that there was a, a single tax dollar. Um, and eventually people did fall in love with it. And there was, um, it was very, very hard. It was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done. 
And, you know, I, I've been talking about it now recently because I realized I ended up doing myself really a great disservice by not talking about how hard it was, um, by making it seem very easy. And, uh, I've spent my life being like hyper capable and, you know, hyper capable people just keep getting more and more responsibilities and to just, um, be graceful through all adversity is, I think on one level, very important. And on another level, it sets unrealistic expectations of ourselves and of others. Definitely. I totally agree with that. I think that that's one thing I find beautiful about the making of art is that it's a pretty messy process. Mm. Like the perfect image of what you've created really diminishes the process that it took to get you to that you know, whether it's like mm-hmm. that fifth Halloween pumpkin mm-hmm. thing or what, you know, that even the first four were terrible. And you, but people love to see that ending and then they make all these assumptions about how you actually got there. So I think that's really powerful what you said. I mean, how long did that take from maybe the lowest point to then you feeling like, okay, some folks have come around? How long did that take for that transition? A little bit. It happened kind of right away for some people. And then for some people, it just never happened. And, and that's okay. You know, like we don't do things for the, like the accolades, right? So I have a, I have a servant leader practice. And so, you know, I believe that the highest order is, is to be of service. And I believe, you know, at my core that access to art saves lives. And so that is, that's really, really important to me. Do you have a practice that you do consistently that helps you deal with a situation like that? Like, Because I think one thing I've found being a woman and also coming from a place that was pretty poor and then going to places like Panic, the self-doubt is real. You want people to like your idea. Like you, you don't want to take no, you think you have a good idea. Why are people not on board with this idea? And how do you keep from getting discouraged? So I'm also really interested, what are the practices that people have personally that help them? Yeah. Do you have something you could share? Yeah, I have a couple things. One is uh, early on, I realized that I don't go to work to make friends, you know, like I go to work to do my job. And being a mom, I think was really helpful with that, right? Like my work isn't my whole life. Uh, my job isn't my whole life. And so I know that people have different levels of comfort with all sorts of things. And I genuinely believe that everyone does the best they can with the information that they have at the time. And so I work really hard at at um, honoring other people's perspective and being able to find like the care in a complaint. So I have a daily meditation practice. I have, I don't know, 1,550 days in a row or something like that. And um, I know that meditation has rewired my brain and it's allowed me to expand the time between the stimulus and the response. And I, I talk a lot about that with my team. We do kind of Quaker meeting style meetings where if you feel compelled to share something, then you speak. And if you don't, you can be silent. So I, through my meditation practice, I'm very practiced at not reacting to any stimulus, whether it's a, a criticism or it's um someone's negative energy or something that maybe earlier in my life I would 
let throw me off course for the day or, or something like that. So that is probably the most important practice that I have. I'm super ritualistic. I start the day, I make the bed, I journal, I meditate, I have a matcha um, and I exercise. And so all of those things matter. And definitely the most profound thing is the meditation practice. So I'm on day 210. I just started this Amazing. year, but I, I'm like, why haven't I done this sooner? I think as a parent, um, it is, it's definitely helped me a lot with, with mothering, I think. There's still improvement, you know, and we all have work to do, but I think it's amazing what it can do for your brain. Yes, I totally agree. So you were in Aspen for about 15 years? 14 years. 14, 14 years. 14. Mm-hmm. And then were you, you had kind of done the job there, done the yeah. thing, built the building, yeah. you felt like it was again time for a new chapter? Yeah, basically. I mean, I uh, exceeded every goal that I ever set for myself and the institution. You know, we won the national medal. We, uh, I mean, our architect won the Pritzker Prize. You know, I mean, it, there there wasn't really anything left to do, to be honest. And I I worked on broadening my practice. I worked on deepening my practice. I really wanted to get what I could you know, from it. Um, my daughter really wanted to be able to graduate from Aspen Country Day. And so I definitely stayed longer than, you know, I might have otherwise. And then when she had gone on to uh, boarding school in Connecticut, I wanted to try something different, you know, and I, I wanted to see if I could connect people to art and artists outside of a building. So I was interested in media, interested in podcasting and um, TV and and writing books. And so I, I set out to, to do that and had a commitment to doing that. And then the pandemic happened very soon into my new approach. And I found that I felt super isolated and really lonely without a team. And there was a time where they were predicting that 70% of museums were going to go out of business. And I knew as a, a seasoned museum leader that I, I just couldn't turn my back on the field. You know, museums are, are my place. They're my home and that I, I felt like I was needed. So when the Orange County Museum of Art reached out and they were interested in a new building, I, made the trip out here to take a look and I realized what this could be and and I got pretty excited about it and the board was really gracious and told me I could keep everything that I had started. I could keep my podcast and my book series and and the boards that I sit on and and they basically said, "Look, we're going to make it impossible for you to say no." <laughs> you know? So, uh so I'm so I'm so grateful, you know, to to be here and to test out some of the things that I have really wanted to and um, to really manifest what I believe in. You know, this idea that access to art is a basic human right and not a privilege and to be able to secure a donor to make general admission to the museum free for the first 10 years and and to put right on the front doors of the museum, everyone is welcome. And it's it's pretty radical. Uh, and it's it's really exciting, and and that is what I think a museum of the 21st century can be. So we we opened the museum on the 8th of October, and we had 10,000 people come. And uh, amazing, yep. And then the you know first five days after that, we had another 10,000 people come. And so to serve 20,000 people in the first week, that was beyond the annual attendance that the museum used to have in its former location. So I 
I worked the line, you know, a lot of the 24 hours. um, And I said, you know, who knew that all these people needed contemporary art? Like that was my hope and my dream and my desire. And, and to be able to see it manifested here is, it's just thrilling. Oh, that's so incredible. I can't wait to to come see it. I'm definitely coming down. The building itself is just amazing. And then I've seen some images of, of what's inside. Just I'm searching, but I can't wait to see it in in person. Yeah, you're welcome anytime. Well, it must be an, a nice transition as we move into winter that now you're at the beach instead of in the mountains <laughs> after 14 yes. years of snow. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I was on the beach last night and the smell of the ocean is also really grounding for me. And that is, uh, it's a big part of how I, I was able to, to get so much done in such a short period of time. It was to be able to have a place to go to center and ground. And you asked earlier if, if I make art and, and I, I don't have that as an outlet. Um, what I have is, is nature and spending time in nature, running and hiking and, um, sitting and walking. And, and so that is my, that is my place of solace and company and outlet. So. Have you thought about the impact of nature on creativity? Yes. Is that something you believe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like for you personally, but have you seen that with others too? I have, yes. And and I think that there any place that people can connect with something greater than themselves, and I think that that happens through art. I think that happens um, through nature. I think that happens through spirituality. And I think that any of those influences, anything that reminds us how small we are in um, the greatest sense of, of the world is so important. You know, that kind of humility um, in the face of art, in the face of nature, and in the face of the divine, uh, it's so important. Oh, that's so beautiful. Okay, I, let's talk about access and art. So I was in New York last week. Um, actually doing some fundraising for rebuilding because my town flooded in Kentucky over the summer. So my husband and I went and we we were in Brooklyn for this event. And then the next day, I really wanted to go to the Whitney because we were staying downtown and I actually hadn't been in the new building. And so I'm like, I really want to go. Edward Hopper's New York exhibit is there. And I just like, oh, this is, I'm like, what's more American than Edward Hopper? So I tell my husband that we should go. And he says, I think I'm going (laughs) to go find the Nike store. And I was like, Okay. But I was thinking, I wanted to ask you, like, next time I want him to come to a museum with me, how do I get him to feel like it's for him? And I think he would have liked it had he gone in. This whole exhibition was all around his scenes of New York. And you're in New York. So it was kind of very meta. It was very cool. But how do you think about like encouraging people you love to come and be exposed to something new? I feel like a tingling when I go into places. Like I just feel so good and cool and I just love it. But how do you get other people to be open to that? Yeah, I think that... um I like to talk about art and we're, we're trying to talk about the museum in the same way that people talk about like a Netflix series, you know, or a new restaurant, you know, like, Hey, I just did this thing and it's amazing, you know, or, um, I read this book. You have to read it, you know, so to have people kind of evangelize, you know, for us and, and to feel like they can do that about art and to do that about a museum. And so it's really, I think about an authentic response to what you've seen. And, you know, we haven't met, uh, we're spent the last hour talking or whatnot. And when you said like, I, I just get kind of tingly when I look at art or I think about looking at art, I'm like, oh, 
me too, right? <laughs> like, hey, I, I want to go and look at art together. Um, yes. So I, I think, you know, I'm, I really love people who are passionate about something. I don't really care what it is. You know, I don't care if it's like boats or like koalas or like, you know, Indian spices. I mean, you know, random stuff, right? You know, when people are like really enthusiastic about something, then it makes other people curious. You know, like uh, enthusiasm is contagious, you know? And uh, so my son was just at the LSU Alabama game, okay? And um, he doesn't go to either school. My husband's from Alabama, so he's passionate about Alabama football, <laughs> more so than the Whitney, apparently. Yeah, but that idea of being with other people for a shared experience and, you know, knowing a little bit, like hearing the story of the quarterback or like the wide receiver or, you know, hearing something about that person, you know, where they grew up or how they ended up at that school or why the coach came there, right? So like telling a little bit about Edward Hopper, right? Making him come alive. Uh, and, you know, like we're not that interested in someone or something that we know nothing about. So just a little spark of curiosity comes from a little bit of information. Mm. So it's about the storytelling. I think so. Yeah. Well, I was actually, after seeing it, I was more fascinated with his wife, Josephine, which is also yeah. my mom's name, and, he, and all the portraits he did of her and how she stood in as his model. I thought that piece, and then, and I was thinking about, well, at that time, it maybe she could have maybe even been the better artist, but it maybe would have been impossible for her to ever get that recognition. Exactly. Because of when the year, you know, the year they were living in. Yeah. Things are often more complicated than they seem. And things are often richer than people anticipate. And so being able to make something dimensional for other people, uh, I've turned so many people onto art who definitely thought it wasn't for them. And a big part of it is through my pure passion and enthusiasm. So at this point in my life, I'm just a straight up evangelizer, you know, proselytizer for art. So, cause I, I know, I, I know that it makes people's lives better, straight up, full stop. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. Oh my God. Okay. Is there anything else that you think we didn't cover that you'd love to? Yeah. The only other thing I'd like to just emphasize is that I would love to personally invite all of your listeners to come to the museum. And I am really issuing these, you know, personal invitations and, and a, a lot of the people who showed up at the 24 hour opening said, you know, I came because Heidi invited me. And I, I really do want people to feel like, you know, I, I've invited them, that they are welcome, that this is, you know, this is your museum. This is, this is everyone's museum. And I, I would just love to underscore that, you know, for the listeners that, you know, we're, we're waiting, we're here waiting for, uh, for everyone to come. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, and, and just to put a very specific fine point on it, it's in Costa Mesa, which is in Southern California yes. in Orange County. Yes. Um, yes. John Wayne Airport nearby, I guess Long exactly. Beach, LAX. You could come to any of those. And the beach is right there, Laguna Beach. And, you know, it's beautiful. It's really a great trip. Anyone on the West Coast, I think it's a pretty, very easy place to get to. If you're traveling from further, it's worth the trip. Yep. Absolutely. And we're just off the 405 and we're closed Mondays, but we're open all the other days. And again, we have free general admission for the first 10 years. So people are coming for Disneyland or anything else you can spend a day here with us. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, Disneyland, Legoland, SeaWorld, 
ACMA. That could be like the, you know, the fourth point on the stop. Exactly. So do you have some programming that's just for kids? Yes. We or do. how are you thinking of reaching kids and teens? Okay. Yeah. So um, because I've been a mom my entire career, you know, I had the benefit of asking my kids what they think is interesting. And I remember when the Children's Museum opened in DC, the critic who reviewed it, I can't remember for which paper, but I believe it was a woman said they obviously didn't bring any kids through this museum. Uh, and it's not up to us to decide what other people want to see. You know, it, it's about um, being in conversation. And so before we did our summer camps or, or our winter camps or after school programs, I would always bring them home and read them to my kids before they could read. And then once they could read, have them read them themselves and, and say, you know, does this sound interesting? What are we missing? You know, what would you like to do? And so that's always been a priority for me is, is to have kid centric programs. And we, we have that here as well. And we're, we're rolling them out and we have guides for kids. We have, I, I personally, actually, this is one of the things we didn't talk about, but I wrote a, uh, a suggested guide for looking at art, five questions to ask yourself to make art available and accessible to anyone that comes to the museum. And they're questions that, that everyone already knows the answer to. And it, it just makes art available in a way that, that it previously hadn't been. So those five questions are at the museum? Yes, they're posted right right when you come in the museum before you see any exhibition. Well, that's great because I think too, say if you didn't grow up with art in your family or you didn't weren't taken to museums, you might walk in the museum and just like, what do I do now? Exactly. You know, like I can go look around, but then it may feel a bit exactly. boring. You're like, oh, I, but I love that idea of starting the conversation, which is what you do so well with artists and patrons and all of now all of the ACMA visitors. Thank you so much. I want to say a huge thank you to Heidi for joining us on the show today and for sharing her story. I learned so much about art curation and the art world. I hope some of you budding artists took notes on all that. And maybe if you love art, but you aren't sure that making it is your thing, being a curator could be the perfect job for you. Thank you again for joining us and make sure to follow us for more creative conversations. Of course, if you like today's show, consider leaving us a review or a comment or sharing the creativity with someone else in your life. We'll see you next time on the Michael's Craftivity Podcast.